you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, um, is where we're going to begin today. You know, one of the, the things that I advocate for is, is preaching through Scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, in season, out of season, week by week. Because one of the joys of doing that um, is you get to preach things you don't like, or you don't want to preach, or you would, maybe wouldn't naturally preach. And as a church, we get to sit under not just the passages our pastor um, likes, but we get to sit under the entirety of Scripture. And today's passage, I think, is one of those passages um, that you either have heard a lot or not heard at all. Um, in some churches, this passage might be preached every week. In other churches, they might never touch it. Um, but I think it has a lot to say for us, specifically as we talk about the idea of how do we live in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile towards the things of God, right? If you remember back to the first week, we talked about this idea that Peter is talking to a group of people that are in similar situations to us. They're not yet facing physical persecution. Um, Their lives, in a lot of ways, aren't physically um, uncomfortable because of what God Um, and the persecution they're facing, but it is becoming increasingly social persecution, increasingly financial, political persecution, and they're becoming increasingly isolated from the people around them. And we talked about how Peter's solution to them. Peter said, if you want to continue living faithfully, faithfully for God in these trials, then what you need to do is remember that you're in covenant with God. That you are in covenant with God, meaning that God and you have an agreement that's facilitated, that's built upon what Christ has done on your behalf, and the payment of Christ's blood into your account. And that then factors into how you live. And so we talked about last week this idea that one of the main premises of this covenant is that we would live holy lives. And we ended last week with Peter's command to live honorably among the Gentiles. That we as Christians living among people who are not Christians, are called to live in such a way that they would see us and they would understand the nature and excellencies of our God. So Peter said in chapter 2. And so beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2, what Peter is going to do is he's going to then practically flesh out what does it look like to live honorably. And he's going to walk through basically a, a kind of a broad sweep of every interaction, every social construction that you might have. And basically, how do you live honorably in that? But before we dive into those, there's three things that I, that I need you to see in each one of these. So that when I start repeating myself, you understand why I'm repeating myself. You see, because in each one of these things, the first thing Peter is going to say is that they are all grounded. The thing that grounds how a Christian interacts in each one of these situations is the idea of personal evangelism. Here's what I mean by that. If we were to go back to verse 11, I think of chapter 2, you would see that he says that that our purpose as priest of God is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out out of darkness into light. And so what Peter's understanding is, in each one of these situations, as the believer interacts with non-believers, their life will be a testament to the message they preach. And so their life must be in line with the message they're preaching. And that their life is not in line with the message they're preaching is going to disrupt their ability to share the gospel with the people that God has called them to share with. And so in each one of these situations, one of the governing principles and one of the things he keeps coming back to is what is the best way for a Christian to present themselves humbly so that gospel can be magnified in them and proclaimed through them. The second thing is that in each one of these situations, he's expecting the, the believer to be interacting with an unbeliever. 
So if you compare, um, especially when we get to chapter 3, when you compare it to maybe um, the end of Ephesians or what we see in, in Corinthians or Romans, what becomes interesting is he's expecting on some way that maybe an unbelieving spouse with a believing spouse, that you would have believers interacting in the political scene with unbelievers, that you would have a believing servant and an unbelieving master. The idea that in each one of these situations, and so he's not writing to govern maybe how believers would interact in these relationships with each other. There is, we're going to see, there's, there's points that he's making to that. But one of the big underlying assumptions that Peter has is that the believer would be interacting with non-believers in each one of these situations. The third thing is that he expects that the way the Christian would react in these situations is a direct response to what Christ has done. That as the believer looks to Christ, that's going to then impact how he interacts with other people, or she interacts with other people. He expects that if you are a Christian, how you interact with other people is dictated by who Christ is and what he's done. So three things to keep in mind. That he grounds each thing in personal evangelism, that he expects a believer to be interacting with an unbeliever, and then he expects that we would live in response to who Christ is and what he's done. And so with that said, let's begin by looking at verse 13. So starting, starting in verse 13, here's what Peter writes. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creation, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, we're going to ask some questions, each one, and each one of these institutions, we're going to ask some questions about them. Um, But first, if you're reading along, especially if you're reading along um, in an ESV, you would notice that there was a word that I read differently than you have in your Bibles. If you look at verse 13, it says, for the, be subject for the Lord's sake to every, and I read, creation. If you have an ESV, the word there is probably institution. Now you may be saying, okay, well, why was Nick's word different than what I have in my Bible? That's a good question. That word there that's translated institution, every other place in the New Testament, it's used a lot, it is translated as creation or creature. The idea behind it is that of being a human being or an animal or that which God created, right? And so the idea here is the reason they translate institution is they're kind of inferring what Peter's implying to, but, but the, the most literal translation would be be subject to every human creation, Everything humans create, and what in the context we understand that to be, is everything humans create to govern how they interact with each other. So be that the government with its citizens, be that the master with the slave, right? In some ways we understand marriage should be God's institution, but there's a way in which man, um, especially the Greeks and the Romans, understood those interactions to happen. And so what Peter is saying is, is he's saying as Christians, we are going to live in a world in which the institutions around us govern how we should behave. Right? We all understand that on some level. Why do you drive on one side of the road and not the other? Because there's a human creation, there's a human law saying that one side of the road is the correct side to drive on and the other side is wrong. And depending on what country you live in, that will determine what that is. Right? That's a human creation. And so why do we as Christians, why is we as Christians should be subject to that if it's a human creation? right? We know that our ultimate authority is God, and so why do we as Christians need to subject ourselves to something that's not God? 
put ourselves under the authority of something that's not God. And Peter's really going to answer that here, of why, as, and, and I think that the understanding not as an institution, but as a creation, as a creature, helps us understand this. Because what Peter's saying is, the reason that we subject ourselves to human creations, be they government, be they workplace relationships, be they whatever that man has created to govern how they interact with themselves, the reason we do that is because the Lord has commanded it. So he says in verse 13, for the Lord's sake, be subject to every human creation. Now the question is, why? Why should we, why why does it benefit the Lord? Why is the Lord asking us to be subject to human creations? To be their government, be they civil authorities, be they whatever they may be. And the reason is, is because ultimately what we see in other places in scripture is that human governments, human institutions are an extension of God's authority. Here's the reality of the situation. Biblically speaking, it is very, very difficult to be in rebellion against human authority and in submission to God's authority. I'll say that again. Biblically speaking, it's very difficult to not submit yourself to your human authority and claim that you're submitting yourselves to godly authority. Because the reason is God has all authority. All human authority on some level is derived from authority given by God to that human or that institution. And so in reality, your rejection of whatever human authority is placed over over you whether it be a child rejecting their parents, whether it be us rejecting a civil authority, whatever that may be, our rejection of that in some ways is showing our rejection towards the authority of God. And so we understand, right, we we can look through human history and we can find great examples of when um, a rejection of human authority was necessary to submit to the authority of God. But by and large, time in and time out, the regular behavior, the, the regular Um, pattern of Christian behavior should be to submit to human authority. The authority placed over them by God. And that's what Peter is saying. In fact, what he's saying in some ways is that it should take a great working of God for us not to submit to human authority. And that Christians should be very slow to view human authority in a distrusting manner. Now, how do we know that? Well, let's think about this for a second and let's look at what Peter's saying to them. Peter's telling them to, to submit to this human creation, to the emperor or the governors placed by him. Now, we briefly touched on it the first week, but we're not exactly sure who these Christians were that he's writing to, but we know it's one of two situations. One situation is that they were Jews who were expelled from the land literally given to them by God, by either the Babylonians or the Assyrians, right? So, They were expelled from land given to them by God by a foreign government. And then they're now being oppressed by the Romans, right? Kept down by the Romans, which is another foreign government. If these are Jews who become Christians, they most likely don't have a very favorable view of the government. But Peter says that doesn't matter. You still have a responsibility to honor the emperor. Or the other solution is that they were Christians who were living in the city of Rome, who were citizens of Rome, And because the emperor needed a scapegoat, he stole their land, he stole their property, he took all their rights, he took away their citizenship, he lifted them out of Rome, carried them across a sea, and placed them in Asia Minor where they had no rights, no citizenship, and no future. So either either way, right, they were people who a government had 
put upon them, that a government had taken away their rights, taken away their land, taken away everything they have, and Peter still comes to them and says, honor the emperor. They had people whose every right, every possession had been stripped from them, and still Peter comes to them and says, honor the emperor. Right, and if we think about this, if we were to go to the book of Acts, and we were to look at the behavior of the apostles, we would ask the natural question, is Peter preaching what he did, right? Does his, does his actions align with what he's teaching? If we were to go to maybe Acts 5 or Acts 12, what we would see is Peter upholding exactly what he's telling these Christians to do. In both those passages, Acts 5 and Acts 12, we see Peter get arrested. And what, he's, what we see in that is while acknowledging his commands directly from God to proclaim the gospel and acknowledging that he submits first and foremost to the authority of God, he submits himself to the human governing authorities over him. In fact, he submits himself to such a point that he takes the punishment from the human authorities, even though they were punishing him for doing what God had said. Think about that for a second. In Acts 5, what we see is he's, he's the temple, the Sanhedrin, um, arrest Peter. And they tell Peter to stop preaching the gospel. And Peter says, that is a direct command from God. I'm sorry, I can't stop preaching the gospel. And so what it says at the end of Acts 5 is it says they flog him for preaching the gospel and they send him away. So even while Peter said, I cannot submit to your command, I must be obedient to God first, he submits himself to the punishment for breaking their command. Why? Because he knows that even though he disagrees with how they're governing, he must honor them as a human institution placed over him by God. Right? And then if we were to look at Paul's life, Paul's life demonstrates this as well. Right? If you were to go to Acts, Acts 16 or later on in, in the book of Acts, you would see Paul arrested on numerous occasions that every time he submits himself to the governing authorities, even while necessarily disagreeing with what's happening to him, he submits himself to the processes in place by his government. Understanding that he is placed there by God, he is called there by God, and that he will live as God has called him to live. Now, there's a natural question that arises when we're talking about government, a natural objection that comes. Well, what if my government is doing evil? There's two things we need to talk about this and answer this. First, a biblical understanding of government is found right here in 1 Peter. The purpose of government, according to 1 Peter, is to punish those who do evil and reward those who do good. A biblical government, a good, just government under the Bible, is a government that punishes evil and rewards good. And we understand, at least on a conceptual level, that because all human governments have humans in them, they will all fail on this in some level. And so they will all in some level not punish evil as much as they should, and they will not reward good as much as they should. And so no government that that any human has ever lived under has been perfect. The only government that will be perfect is when Christ returns and reigns on this earth. And then we will finally have a perfect government. But until then, we will live in imperfect governments. And Peter understands this, right? He's he's witnessed it firsthand. And so he lets him know, even while that's the, the idea of what a government should be, he understands the reality that governments will fail this. And so he gives them verse 15. You see, verse 15 tells us that it's the will of God that when we are faced with a government who does evil, we submit ourselves to it and we do good in spite of it so that by our actions, by our good deeds, the ignorance of the people doing evil is shown for what it is, is foolishness. 
You see, Peter, even in this passage, understands that governments will do evil things. Governments will not do what God has commanded them to do, what the biblical understanding of government is. But he says that does not excuse the behavior of a Christian to to not do good. And that a Christian's governing principles are still the same. And they're to conduct themselves in such a way that not their words, but their actions shame those who are not doing what God has called them to do. And he goes on to explain this farther in verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This is really interesting. Because what he's saying to them is this idea that their freedom is not about themselves. God has not placed them in a position where their freedom is to be used for their, their ends. Their freedom is to be used for the ends in which God has called them to use it for. And so they are to be slaves even while they're free. Or to put it another way, in a very American way, God has given them rights, not so they can use their rights, but so they can submit their rights in service of other people. God has called them to take everything they have and subject it to the authority of God first and foremost, but then to the authority of the government. Now, we need to be honest with ourselves for a second. And I'll be honest before I say what I'm about to say. I prayed a lot about this this week, and I debated this a lot this week. But in reality, I think this is a passage that should be very convicting to us. Because as I look at social media, as I look at our behaviors, I think it becomes very evident that what we prefer is to make sure that everyone respects our rights, not knows the excellencies of our God. We spend more energy, more effort, more actions, more space, more talking, defending our rights than we do proclaiming that our God saves. And listen, I understand that as Americans, we have the God-given blessing of being able to voice our concerns in government. We have a role in government that most of human history could never even imagine. And so we have a God-given responsibility to use that well. And I'm not saying that as Christians, we, aren't, we don't advocate for a just government, that we don't protect the vulnerable, that we aren't involved in government. But what I am saying is that the reason we do that is not so that we are protected. The reason we do that is that the orphan and the widow are protected. The reason we do that is that there's an opportunity for us to go and proclaim that we serve a God who saves. You see, what Peter's saying here is the reason that they are free is not so they can use their freedom to do evil. The reason they are free is so they can serve God better. The reason God has given us rights and liberties and to live under a government that's supposed to protect those is so not that we can go about doing whatever we want and do evil and and cause disruption, but he's given those so that we have the opportunity to proclaim Jesus. Why is it a sad reality that in countries where it's illegal to proclaim the gospel, they on average proclaim the gospel more than any Christian in America? When we as Americans have every right and freedom to proclaim the gospel whenever and wherever we want. We literally have written our laws, protections for us to share the gospel, yet we share the gospel less than people in countries where it's illegal to do so. 
I'm sorry, but that's using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. There's one more thing we need to draw from this. If you go back to verse 13, I said instead of human institution, I said that a better translation is a human creature or human creation. And what's interesting is Peter makes it very clear that it's not institutions that are the government. The government is people. Right? He, says, he doesn't say, honor the Roman government. He says, honor the emperor and the governor sent by him. You see, it's not enough biblically to say that we honor our government because we honor the United States of America. No, what, what Peter is saying is to honor your government, to honor the authority placed over you by God, you must honor Joe Biden. You must honor Governor Stent. You must honor our mayor and our civil council and whoever is elected over us. Not just a, a, a nebulous thing out there that's the government. No, you must honor the people in government who God has placed in authority over you. Do you honor the people placed over you by your social media posts? Do you honor the people placed over you by how you talk to your friends? And again, I reiterate, you don't have to agree with every decision somebody makes to honor them. But you conduct yourself in such a way that when people look at you, the thing they see is not your political standing, but what God has done to save you. Here's my fear, is that we spend so much time saying what we disagree with people on the other side of the aisle with us, that if it ever came for an opportunity to witness that person, they couldn't hear us because all we spent the time doing is screaming about all the things we disagree with them about. And again, we should be involved in government. We should be advocating for biblical policies. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is, we have to understand that our priority is not a better government. Our priority is preaching the gospel of those that are lost and dying. And to live in obedience to the authorities placed over us by God, even when those authorities are not doing what we understand biblically they're supposed to do. Psalm 37, 6 through 8. God will vindicate and publicly defend your cause. Wait for the Lord. As Americans, we love to defend our rights. We love to take offense at every opportunity to be offended. And that's on both sides of the aisle. But the reality is, servants don't get the right to be offended. Slaves do whatever the master tells them. We are to use our freedoms to be slaves to God. And so let us not return evil for evil, but let us honor the emperor, do good, and love the brotherhood. It's not an easy challenge, it may not be a fun challenge. For Peter, for Paul, for most of the people you read about in the New Testament, honoring the emperor did not end up well for their lives. But submitting to God meant they submitted to the human institutions put above them.
And the reality is, as Peter understands it, a submitting to God's authority doesn't just limit itself to human institutions, human creations like government, but also to the idea of being subject to your master. In verse 18, he tells servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to good and gentle, but also to unjust. The reality is, as far as I know, there's no one in our congregation who is a slave to a master. We understand there's places in the world where this is a biblical, where this is a reality, there are slaves. And we understand this time, this is reality. And so the question becomes, okay, well, how do we understand this as 21st century humans living without slave-master relationships? There's a couple of ways I think we need to understand this. First of all, you need to understand that really from verse 18 all the way through chapter 3, verse 12, the understanding is that of a household. He's talking about slaves in a household. And so what he means and what we need to understand is whatever, whoever's placed in authority over us in a household setting, so whether it be, you know, a father, whether it be a husband, or, or whether you just be in a situation where there's somebody placed in authority over you in a workplace, right, in a social setting, you have a responsibility as a Christian to submit to them if they're placed in authority over you. And here's where it gets really tricky. Peter makes clear your responsibility to them to honor them and submit to them does not end if they behave incorrectly towards you. You're not supposed to honor them just when they're being good and gentle. You're supposed to honor them when they're being unjust. In fact, in verse 19, Peter says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In reality, what he goes on to say is he says, if you do evil things and you face the punishment for them, why is it good that you're facing a punishment? Right? If a child breaks a rule and you send them to time out, we don't commend them for doing time out well. Right? That was was the punishment for their crime. They had to do the time. But if you're punished for doing good, Think of the reward for your suffering. As Peter says, it's a gracious thing in sight of God to suffer not for doing evil, but for doing good. In fact, as we we read all this and we're talking about this next week, one of the big things underlying Peter's message is this idea that the Christians will suffer for doing good. That doing good is not a remedy to remove suffering. And the Christians should count it joy when they suffer for doing good to echo what James will say, or Paul will say, or Jesus himself said. But ultimately, what grounds even verses 13 through 17 is the person and work of Jesus. In verse 21, he tells them that they've been called to be subject. They've been called to suffer unjustly. That they've been called to put themselves under good masters and bad masters. They've been called to live under what authority God has placed over them because Christ suffered for them. Listen, we want to talk about a government that oppresses our rights. How about we instead talk about the king of kings, the prince of princes, who is all authority, who has all control, who created all things, subjecting himself 
to torture and death at the hands of the very government whose power they're borrowing from him. We're going to talk about the rights that we have. What about the rights that Jesus had? That he freely gave up to the point of dying on the cross for our sins. So before we're going to talk about suffering humiliation, before we're going to talk about suffering hardships or trials or or losing our dignity or our rights or whatever we think it may be, we better take a good hard look at Jesus. Because the creator of this world, as we sang about this morning, that created everything that you see, being in the very image of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but lowered himself to the point of the servant, become obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, the ultimate example of being subject for the sake of something better is Christ subjecting himself to the will of the Father for our behalf so that we could be saved. He committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. He was reviled. He was threatened. He was ultimately murdered. And in response, what did he do? He did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Let Christ be our example. The one who had all power and authority did not vindicate himself, but let the Father vindicate him. If you go read Revelation, there's a day coming when the judgment will be poured out and he will be vindicated. And the reality is, there's a day coming, Revelation makes this clear, when those who do evil, who punish Christians, who who punish those who do good, will face their judgment as well. But biblically speaking, we are not the ones to pour out that judgment. Let us wait on our Lord. Let us cry to our Lord, Lord, judge those who do evil. But until that time, let us live as Christ lived, being subject to those placed in authority over us. Peter, again and again throughout this letter, has called us to look to Christ. And the reality is, in whatever situation, whatever relationship we're in, if we don't look to Christ first and foremost, we will ultimately make the relationship about ourselves. I will speak for myself, and I will not throw anybody else under the bus here. But as a segue to to what we're going to talk about next, an idea of marriage, I often find that when I'm angry in my marriage— it says a lot more about my thoughts and behaviors than it does about anything my wife did. Because most of the time, I can boil down the issue to something like this. Don't you know who I am? How dare you do that? I'm not going to say any of this in second service when she's here, but I'll say it now. <laughs> and I think if we're all honest with ourselves, there's some reality to that. That whatever the situation is, from something as silly as waiting in a long line at a grocery store where we're mad about how long it's taking, to a a tiff at work, to to a frustration with the government, on some level what we're saying is, don't you know who I am? How dare you do that to me? 
Don't you know that I deserve this or that or this thing or, or that privilege or that right? And reality, our example, is the one that deserved every privilege and right, humbling himself and dying on a cross for our behalf. And so let's be real clear this morning. If you're here and you've not trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this is impossible for you to do. As we talked about the past few weeks, our obedience to the commands of Christ comes from the Spirit indwelling us. And what Scripture lets us know is the Spirit will only indwell those who believe in Christ. And so the reality here is if you're here and you're saying, well, that sounds great. I need to lower myself. I need to be subject to the ones placed over me. The reality is that apart from Christ, you will fail every time at this. And so if you're here and you realize your failure of this, turn from your sins today and trust in Christ to save you. As Peter says in verse 24, by his wounds, you have been healed. He died for your behalf. He died so that you might be saved. So turn today from your sins and trust in Jesus. He can save you. He died so that you can be saved. And ultimately, looking to him is the only way that we will live this out. And so the third institution, the third thing that Peter calls the believer to be subject to is he calls the wives to be subject to their own husbands. Now, before we dive into this, there's a word that we need to pay attention to. Beginning of verse 3, he says the word likewise. He's making very clear this idea is connected to what's come before. Two things that come before. It's connected to the idea of being subject to every human institution, but it's also the idea of being an extension of how Christ lived. That the way a wife subjects herself to her own husband is an extension of the way and the humility that we see of Christ. And what's really interesting about this command here in 1 Peter is that, unlike what we see maybe in Ephesians, it's very clear that Peter is expecting these wives that he's talking to to have unbelieving husbands. How do I know that? Well, look what he says. So even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. The idea being, and we do have to understand there's some cultural nuance here to what Peter's saying. In that time period, a wife did not disagree with her husband. And so what Peter's saying is, he understands the situation these wives find themselves. That they're living with husbands that don't understand, husbands that maybe are getting ready to throw them out on the street for their faith in Christ. And he calls them to live and to subject themselves to those very husbands. To live in such a way they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. To live in such humility towards their husbands that their husbands have no other option but to realize the validity of the claims their wife are making about following Christ. It goes in line with what we've seen. Peter says, doesn't say, wives, be subject to your husbands when they're doing everything right. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands in spite of all the wrong they do. Let their conduct be respectful and pure. 
And in fact, this gives us kind of the, the, the context for what he says in, in verse 3, right? Do not let your adorning be external. And then verse 4, but let your adorning be hidden in the person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The reality is, what Peter's trying to get these women to understand is that as they focus on outward things, they'll actually have an adverse effect of what they're trying to accomplish. But if they really want to live in harmony with their husbands, in a union with their husbands, and with a union in Christ, the reality is they must focus first and foremost on living lives in line with what God has commanded. On eternal, internal beauty. Both eternal beauty too, as Peter will describe it. The idea being that as a woman submits to God and lives in submission to God, that she will live in submission to her husband and she will do it in such a way that her husband has no other option but to then live his life in submission to God. And so in this passage, we're drawn back to what we see in the garden, right? Of the woman being the helpmate to the man. And we see it done not through a strong rebuke, or a strong word, but humble and gentle behavior. And the reality is, men or women, our natural reaction, when we see something wrong, is to say something. When we feel like we're being offended, or things aren't being done rightly, our natural reaction is to speak out about it. And what Peter's saying here is he's not saying don't speak out about it, don't say something if the opportunity arises. Clearly, that's not in line with what we see in the rest of Scripture. But what he is saying is that our conduct should be the first testament to wrong behavior and then let our words follow behind. Let us live in such a way that wrongness is corrected not by our words first and foremost, but by our pure and humble behavior. And then our words follow up with it. We live in a culture which people talk a lot about virtue. They talk a lot about doing this, not doing that, doing right, not doing wrong. And then you look at your lives and you see they're living in complete contradiction to the very things they're teaching or preaching. And what Peter tells these wives, he says, first and foremost, live your lives in accordance with what you believe. That will go longer and go farther to winning over your husbands than any amount of reprimanding or nagging or anything you can do to your husband there. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, likewise again in verse 7. Likewise. Just as, right, as wives submit to their husbands, just as the, mas- the, the slave submits to the master, just as, right, the, the human submits to the government, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. He makes it clear. The commands here are not so the husband can abuse his wife. The commands here are so that a husband can honor his wife and realize that she is just as much a partaker in the covenant of God as he is. That she is just as much in line to inherit everything that God has promised as he is. 
that she is just as much a partner in the gospel with him as any other brother in Christ, as any other believer in Christ. And so he has a responsibility given to him by God to show honor to her and to dignify her and to live in such a manner that she is honored, just as he is to live in such a manner that the emperor is honored. And so Peter puts all this together, and what he's making clear to the believers is that how we live in relationship to each other is a direct testament to what we believe. We cannot say we believe God, we trust in Jesus for salvation, and live in disunity with each other. If we say we believe in Christ, that we trust in Christ for salvation, that will show it in how we interact with each other. And so that's why in verse 8, Peter gives this great conclusion to this whole section. And he says, finally, all of you, finally, if I missed anything, right, if there's any other relationships, if there's anything else, whatever situation you find yourself in, here's some guiding principles. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Forever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Ultimately, Peter sums up this whole section with this idea that our interactions should be a blessing to those we interact with. Whatever the situation, whatever the power structure, whatever the authority over you or under you, are your interactions a blessing to those you come in contact with? Do people walk away saying, I've been blessed because I've interacted with that person today? Does your husband come away saying, I've been blessed because I've interacted with my wife today? Does your wife say that she is blessed because you've shown her honor today? Does your boss or your employer, whatever the situation are, are they honored? Are they blessed because you have interacted with them? Or are you repaying evil for evil? Do you revile those that revile you? Because the reality is, what's said here? That we are to bless, and our example is Christ. Because here's the reality for you today. Let's be glad that when faced with evil, Christ did good. Because if we have the opposite, not a single one of us would be saved. Because every single one of us is sinners. As the worship team comes to lead us in a hymn of invitation, here's the reality. We are sinners. We rebelled against God. We did evil. When faced with a good and perfect God, we chose evil. But Christ did not. He had every right. He had every privilege. He had every power to say there is no salvation for man. They will face punishment for all eternity. But instead, he took on human flesh. He lived a perfect, holy, sinless life. And he was beaten and he was bloodied and he died on a cross for your behalf. So that you can be blessed. So that God's face can shine upon you. He died so that you may live. And ultimately, he did not stay in that tomb, but he rose again, signifying that once and for all that sin and death had been conquered. 
And so if you're here and you need to repent, if you need to turn from your sins and trust in Christ, do it today. I'll be up here in the front. I would love to talk to you. Maybe you're sitting there and you realize, I am a Christian, but I don't know if I can say that all my interactions have been a blessing to others. Then friend, turn and repent today. Look to Christ and live not as one who is free, but as one who is a slave to God. Let us stand together and respond to the word of God.